We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson, joined as is customary for our interview specials by Luke Kinnaman, Producer uh, Discordia. <laughs> so much pomp and circumstance in that. I feel so <laughs> welcome and honored. Our guest today is Anna Millen. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Exeter in Southern England. I want to pause just one second here because people, I've heard people on the beach recently this summer who do not understand what the hell all this means. A PhD candidate means that Anna has completed, Anna has completed her uh, coursework and is working on her dissertation. Otherwise, we'd call her a student. That's that's true of the UK too, Anna, right? Yes, absolutely. There you are. So, so Anna's is sort of in the home stretch, but the home stretch could be a year, it could be five years, you never know. Uh, so uh, she is a PhD candidate, like I said, Southern England, researching at the juncture of fantasy fiction, ecology, modern paganism, and live action role play. I'm sure that if you are listening to this podcast, you are into at least one of those things. For the past four years, she has been looking into the overlap between religion and role play and what that may mean for our ecological awareness. Alongside her studies, Anna teaches myths and legends of Britain, uh, also Ireland, uh, for advanced studies in England. Her work has appeared in the journals Folklore and Hellebore and a number of edited collections, including fictional practices and spirituality. She's also, is this true, Anna, still a member of the Tolkien Society? I have since lapsed, I'm afraid, a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but you, you have, you've done some work on Tolkien, so that's worth mentioning as well. Yes, absolutely. All right, Anna. Uh, I'm going to let Luke take it away. Luke, uh, go ahead and grill Anna about this, this LARPing business. Okay. Well, I guess kind of one of the best things that we can kind of, you know, step off with is for some of our listeners who don't, maybe they uh, align more with the paganism <laughs> in your introduction instead of the LARPing aspect, could you kind of explain what LARP is or live actual role-playing and give us a bit of an idea of what you've kind of discovered so far? Yeah, absolutely, Luke. So I think the easiest starting point is uh, if as a child you would go out into the garden or into a local park and with your friends pretend to be knights or pirates fighting imaginary dragons and rescuing princesses, LARPing is that, but on a more involved scale. It's often compared to improvisation theatre, where people come together to embody characters in a fictional environment uh, to problem solve, collaborate and interact with, with the world of the game. Um, I guess for listeners familiar with Dungeons and Dragons uh, or with role playing with um, computer-based role-playing games like Skyrim or Dragon Age, um, live-action role-playing is very similar to that mechanically, but has an embodied aspect to it, uh, where the players actually embody the characters they are portraying in real time and space. Um, live-action role-play events can happen anywhere from your front room to uh, designated camping sites, uh, and can be anywhere from just a handful of people to thousands upon thousands. Um, Is there an audience for this, Anna, or, or generally not? Because you compared it to improv, but also Dungeons and Dragons. One has an audience, the other often doesn't have an audience. Which, <laughs> which way does it go? So while um, 
quite a large number of both critics and people in the community compare LARPing to theatre. I kind of try to stay away from that definition because, as you rightly uh, mentioned, there is no audience. And in fact, anyone who enters LARP space, who kind of participates in the event, is a participant. Um, participation varies. You can be a player, your kind of paying customer. Uh, you can be a um, non-player character who helps the players um, discover and navigate the world. Uh, you can be a referee uh, who enforces the rules of the game, um, and you can be involved in the kind of backstage organization. But whatever happens, there is no passive audience. Everyone's involved, and everyone is kind of present in this fictional world. Cool. Now, on the note of some of the rules of this, like how would an event like this be structured? Uh, so the type of LARP that we are most we're going to be focused on for this uh, is called a fest LARP because it remind uh, it resembles a festival. Uh, it uh, goes on across uh, three days, uh, usually Friday to Sunday, where players and the designated organization crew uh, go to a specific location, usually a camping site. Um, and from um, about sunup to midnight, uh, the game happens where players um, will uh, interact with each other, uh, will interact with monsters who are designated antagonists uh, played by crew members. Uh, will discover various uh, bits of information about the world and um, generally problem solve within it. And the rules are in a way similar to um, tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, where you have abilities, you have spells, you have hit points uh, that are effectively your character's health. Uh, if you get hit a certain number of times on a certain location, or if you get struck by spells, you lose hit points. Uh, if you're out of hit points, you lay down on the floor and pretend that you're dying for two minutes and then you're dead um, and you can go away and create a new character. Sorry, I said that with too much zeal. My character recently died. I'm still not over it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear. <laughs> um, oh, I hope you can give us some information on your character today as well, because I am quite curious. And I imagine uh, you had mentioned it's similar to some of the rules that you might have in a tabletop RPG. And I always think of Dungeons and Dragons in that regard. And I imagine you're not necessarily carrying around a dice tray and throwing D20s. No, uh, there are role, uh, live action role playing systems that use playing cards to or rock, paper, scissors to decide outcomes of spell casting or combat. Uh, but a lot also don't. Uh, the system I'm focusing on, Curious Pastimes, uh, is um, fairly hands off with the rules in that um, spells have um, 100% success unless they're counted. You have a limited number of spell slots, but um, if you are within those spell slots, your spell will happen. Um, and um, combat uh, is defined by um, the player's ability. It's called hard skill. It's the actual um, physical abilities that you, you as a player bring to the uh, to the character that you're portraying. Uh, so the fights can get fairly intense. But um, just to clarify, uh, we use specially designed weapons, which are um, largely made of foam uh, with a fiberglass core covered in latex. Um, you might know them as buffers. 
uh, and they um, kind of absorb um, the power of the strike. Uh, so uh, injuries are incredibly rare and are mostly due to stupidity. <laughs> as, as many injuries are. <laughs> yes, no matter what you're doing. The wonderful story of my partner tripping while running at full sprint during, in the dark and breaking his leg. Oh, no. <laughs> That's an injury for sure. <laughs> he got better, it's fine. <laughs> oh my goodness. And if your character dies, uh, you can't just uh, start a new game with the character? Is the character dead forever? The character is dead forever, but you're welcome to immediately create a new character and get back into it. Or you can go and help behind the scenes and uh, be a monster or a non-player character to help out with the game if you feel like you need a bit of a break. I'm just going to guess it's frowned upon to be like, ah, oh, my character Morty died. Uh, his twin brother, Bordy, is though alive. And here's Bordy, who's exactly like Morty in every way, except he's not dead. Inevitably, as with other role-playing games, yes, this does happen. <laughs> it, it is an unpopular choice among your fellow players. Ah, <laughs> uh, we hate Bordy. Oh, he's the worst. <laughs> Anyhow, so tell us more. Uh, so a little bit about my character and uh, the world that she inhabits or inhabited until fairly recently. Uh, the kind of wonder of live action role playing for me is that there's a lot of flexibility um, because you bring so much of yourself into your character. Uh, they evolve with you through play and you can... Um, alter them as the play goes on quite significantly. So um, her name was Simonetta after Simonetta Vespucci, the famous Renaissance muse, because I am that pretentious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also be because the um, setting that she was introduced into uh, was loosely based on Renaissance Europe, uh, but also Lord of the Rings and... Um, sort of um, Scandinavian fo folklore and, and, and um, Germanic folklore. Uh, so there were elves, there were um, nobility in pompous hats, um, and there was a lot of uh, kind of spiritual involvement and uh, shamanic-esque traditions. Uh, so Simonetta started off as a peasant scribe to a noble house uh, who joined the war host, that is the main player base. Uh, they are meant to be portrayed as war host of allied nations that travels the land, solving people's problems, um, getting into trouble, doing all sorts of shenanigans. Uh, and she joined the war host as, um, to help out her noble house and to uh, record their deeds on the battlefield. Uh, and um, kind of pootled about for about a year until she met the Archmage of the College of Celestial Magics, who was incredibly powerful, but more importantly, incredibly hot. <laughs> <laughs> and so Moneta was utterly lost, and, and I was also completely smitten, and lo and behold, now we are dating. Ah, the, in, oh, the in real life. Yeah, okay. the spillover, the bleed. Yes, the, the bleed definitely was quite intense. It was interesting to 
um, explore the overlap between our characters developing a relationship um, and the two of us developing a relationship, especially because it was mostly done through letters, actual paper letters, during COVID, and um, the UK has been in a series of lockdowns for much of 2020 and 2021. Uh, so we didn't really see each other other than, um, and we were only able to uh, correspond, but turns out that was just the right thing for a budding romance. Um, that is very romantic, very meta and romantic all at once. Yeah, so emboldened by this kind of romance and because he was of a noble house, she also received a noble title from the regent, um, kind of really gained her footing in the faction and became known as this letter person. Um, she also decided that uh, she could just do anything and get involved with the religious side of uh, her community. The religion, the fictional world uh, of the game, of Curious Pastimes, has a series of cultures and religions. Uh, but this particular religion is very much inspired by um, Wicca and by modern paganism. Uh, until recently, it had um, two deities, a sort of um, earth goddess mother figure uh, called the goddess, and a death-dealing hunter god called the hunter um in the spirit of being more accepting of uh different gender expressions and of non-binary people as of 2019 we also have a third deity who is non-binary themselves which is very cool they're called a the forgeborn but um simonetta was feeling very drawn to the hunter and to this dangerous aspect uh, of worship. Um, the hunter has a cult called the Spears, uh, who are assassins and protectors of the community uh, who um, often walk outside the law. Um, and she decided that she could uh, become part of them and accidentally did a heresy because she um misunderstood a piece of doctrine quite significantly and thought that she could um, define her religious journey in a more significant way than a character would be allowed to do. So, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, no, 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 if, if you have any questions, do jump in. Well, out of curiosity, when you have a universe like this where everything is kind of taking place within curious pastimes and you have religious structures and you have something that's kind of devised and built off of the Wiccan belief. If you don't mind me asking, do you follow any Wiccan beliefs outside of role-playing or is this something that you've gravitated to just through LARP? Like what is the connection there? I myself am pagan uh, eclectic pagan, so I um, kind of do a lot of cherry picking in my spiritual observances. Um, I have heard some kind of assumptions made within the community that there is a significant overlap between uh, modern pagans of all sorts of stripes and role players. Um, an overlap of about 40% is, is the figure that I heard kind of tossed around, like 40% of live action role players will be pagan. Um, but also that is not at all necessary. And I've approached over the course of my research, 
a number of people asking them whether they found particular um, interest in exploring um, this type of religion because of their out-of-character observances, and the answers were mixed. Um, a lot of them are atheists, some are agnostics, some are Christian, um, and basically the the frame of the game, the fantasy of it, uh, seems to be this wonderful leveler that makes even something as overtly inspired by real-world religion as this kind of goddess hunter worship, equally accessible and equally interesting to everyone. So uh, I want to dig in a little bit on curious pastimes. I mean, the source material for this, where does it come from? I mean, once the game gets started, where have we gotten all these ideas to play with? There is a um, constantly shifting group of plot writers uh, people who come up with the stories of the world, how the world works and um, what kind of conflicts and what kind of particular cultural struggles exist within it. But the game has been running for now 26 or 27 years. So many plot, uh, plot writers have kind of cycled through the system. And this is a truly collaborative effort that everyone brings something to the creation of the world and of its particular aspects. Well, so when you get started, what are you actually engaging with? Is it a website? Is it a book? Where where do you get your, your footing? Um, there is a website uh, and a core rule book that explains the mechanics and the sort of flavor of the main cultural groups within the game. Um, gives you a sense of how the magic works as well. But realistically, the information available is incredibly minimal. When I joined the game, um, I did not realize that half the lands that I was kind of inhabiting existed. Uh, so a lot of it was just interacting with other players and picking up information as we go along. Um, there are also significant discrepancies. Uh, so you may get contradicting answers from one person to the next. Uh, because the game is so vast. Um, Curious Pastimes attracts around 800 to 1,000 players, uh, but there are systems that are significantly bigger. Empire has 5,000 players, and um, I think the biggest game in the world at the moment is the German Conquest of Methodia, which is something like 25,000. It's something insane. Well, as a folklorist, I can see why you were drawn to this. This has got a quality of a very ancient, old-school, folkloric style, oral culture, right? People are, that's how you learn. You have to talk to people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a word that get, gets bandied about um, in relation to this is re-enchantment. Uh, it's a term pioneered by Marx, uh, Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. Um, and it basically speaks to this very human desire for magic and mystery in our lives that um, has been um, negated or suppressed uh, by uh, the Enlightenment and by this very rational materialist way of thinking that um, prioritizes things that can be measured and things that can be ordered. Uh, so LARP, like folk stories, and to a certain extent, like spiritual practices, uh, is this great source of re-enchantment, of rediscovering that magic and that wonder. Sure, neo-paganism in particular, right? I mean, I think the word re-enchantment is frequently uttered in uh, neo-pagan circles. Yes, absolutely. 
So something that I'm a bit curious about is things like Curious Pastimes. And you said they have a player base of about 800 to 1,000. How does something like that sustain itself? You mentioned it's been going for about 26 years now. Is there supporters who contribute to it? Is there uh, dues that are associated with it? Uh, players uh, buy tickets to attend, and that is the main revenue uh, for the uh, logistical elements of the system, like renting the sites where the events take place, um, providing catering, providing um, sort of sanitary facilities, uh, but also the vast majority of role-playing systems run on the self-sacrificial work of volunteers. Um, <laughs> And what you pay to attend the events is in no way representative of the kind of work and the kind of money that goes into producing an event that you attend. So it's really this kind of wonderful labor of love that is really not about making money. Sounds like podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So is it, are the site, do they revisit sites? Are there sites that are common sites? You go back to them on a regular basis? Large assistants tend to have specific designated sites that they will revisit year in, year out. Um, Curious Pastimes uses two for the uh, main events that it runs. Uh, there are usually four events a year run between May and September um, with a smattering of smaller accompanying events that target only a small portion of the player base uh, that can uh, the kind of shift around more and use um, more varied locations. So what drew you to this topic, Anna? I, um, I don't know how to set boundaries. Therefore, <laughs> my hobbies have to be my job. And yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I started LARPing um, as an undergraduate when I started university. Um, and when I was in a position to uh, design my own project, I thought, well, something interesting, interesting is happening here. Why not investigate it? Um, and secondly, my main thesis deals with the horned god as this kind of focal figure um, that is both uh, ecological and pagan, but also really present in fantasy picture, uh, fiction. Um, and out of these six live action role play systems I've approached in the UK, every single one of them had a horned god figure. Unfortunately, because of COVID, I wasn't able to pursue all six. I focused on curious pastimes, uh, but he seems to be incredibly ubiquitous, specifically in a live action role playing context. So you'd say this is a many different contexts. So six that you've experienced, but you would say that, you know, nine times out of 10, if I'm doing live action role play, there's going to be a horned god. To be honest, I, uh, oh, this is me going out on a limb because I've yeah, never role played right. outside the UK. Uh, but I would like to say that if um, a live action role play system has a fantasy setting, if you dig deep enough, you will find a horned god figure. In every single case. So give us a bit more about the Horned God figure. You'd mentioned in Curious Pastimes, it's known as the Hunter, correct? So... Yes. Oh, go ahead. Uh, 
Yeah, so generally the horned god can be defined as an anthropomorphic male deity with horns or antlers associated with nature, wilderness, death, um, sexuality, and the underworld. He was named as such by Margaret Murray, uh, who is uh, who was an Egyptologist and anthropologist, but is probably best known um, as this pioneer of modern pagan thinking with her uh, witchcraft hypothesis, witch cult hypothesis, I apologize, which um, basically posits that people who were accused of um, witchcraft during the early modern period were actually practitioners of a survival of a prehistoric fertility cult with the horned god being their um, kind of chief deity who then uh, was castigated as the devil by the Christian church. Uh, there's really, um, and, and this I, Rob speaks to the four women of Wick and one man episode <laughs> of the cult confessions. Uh, there's, there's really no evidence that there was a single figure. There were various um, deities throughout history who were pawned or antlered and who had these associations. Um, but after Murray and after Gerald Gardner's work on uh, Wicca and after kind of his followers, the horned god really becomes this prominently worshipped uh, figure in the modern pagan community, especially uh, in the 80s and 90s. So we have um, kind of the emergence of uh, Wicca and modern paganism in the 50s and 60s, uh, then um, a, a goddess-focused wave um, that is co-temporal with second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s, with Dianic witchcraft, with the work of uh, Z Budapest and Starhawk. And then after this kind of very female exclusive wave, the horned god is rediscovered as uh, her counterpart, as this very suddenly interesting male deity in the 80s and 90s. Um, and you see the work of um, Alan Richardson and um, just looking at my bookshelf, uh, <laughs> Nigel Jackson, yes, I, I and and um, Janshin Stewart Farrer, who um, uh, kind of realized that a more balanced uh, ratio of divinity is perhaps helpful at this point. Is there a sexual aspect to this? Because you mentioned second wave feminism. I'm thinking this is sort of overlapping with the rise of a sex positive third wave feminism. Is that the horn god play a role in that, the phallic god? Yes, absolutely. And there's a wonderfully weird book by John Rowan called um, The Horned God, Feminism and Men as Wounding and Healing. Uh, and I believe it was published either in the very late 70s or the very early 80s. Uh, and it reimagines the horned god as this new man who um, is able to be nurturing and caring and uh, sexually um, open, but not domineering and not, not using sex for power. The new sensitive man of the 80s, Robert Smith and the Cure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. And with um, a lot of... Um, modern paganism still revolving around uh, equating 
the natural agricultural cycle with the reproductive cycle uh, and kind of heterosexual union between the goddess and the god, um, the horn god definitely also fulfills that role as the goddess's lover and mate, uh, all of that good stuff. With the horned god being your one of your primary focuses in your research, how is your research kind of progressing? It is less straightforward than I thought it would be. <laughs> Which is wonderful because it gives me space to really nitpick a lot of details. Um, so on the surface, the claim I'm making is fairly simple that um, the horned god is perceived as um, an environmental nature-centric figure by the modern pagan community. And as environmentalism becomes more prescient in our kind of public imagination, and as fantasy emerges as one of the, if not the fastest growing uh, genres, at least in the West today, so the horned god enters that genre and becomes uh, this kind of interesting vehicle of environmental thought and environmental debate. And there is definitely that, but it's much less straightforward in that modern paganism isn't really a functional environmental movement. So if the horned god is representing nature, what kind of nature is he representing? How are we imagining the natural world to function? What kind of divisions are we drawing between nature and culture? Because those, those things really shouldn't be separate, but they very often are. Um, and what is the exact divide between esoteric texts and fantasy texts. Um, I think you've uh, mentioned on the podcast um, the writing of Dion Fortune and uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's Mists of Avalon. Um, like Dion Fortune's The Goatfoot God mm -hmm. is a, a work of fiction and so is Mists of Avalon. But they are cited within the pagan community as these quasi-religious texts that lead a lot of people to spiritual awakenings. And for the horned god, it's almost always um, slain the whole, horned god, the Pat Mills comic book, that, that serves that spiritual purpose for people. Well, it's so much more fun in the fictional world. I mean, Dion Fortune is a, a fun read, I think, no matter what, but naturally her fiction is going to be more... Uh... I guess, imagistic and, and call to mind uh, more fun themes and ideas than uh, her magical battle of Britain, for example, where we're just sort of standing in an imaginary tower battling the Nazis, <laughs> which is also cool. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, but, cool and timely. Yeah. Right. Oh my goodness. Yes. We should probably get back to that. Um, <laughs> this makes me think also, Anna, of uh, concepts like Viril, uh, which came from Edward Bulwer-Lytton, was fictional idea, or his dweller on the threshold. I mean, this is a guy I dwell on a lot, uh, no pun intended, but because so many of his ideas as a fictional writer, British uh, MP, become aspects of Aleister Crowley and Blavatsky, like everybody picks up his ideas and they become actual aspects of occultism. I'm interested, I guess, I mean, we started talking about this, your beliefs and the beliefs of the LARPers in that that overlap, how beliefs spill back and forth between these worlds. There's definitely evidence uh, in the case of the Horned God in particular of purely fictional narratives spilling over and be becoming accepted as 
folklore of the community, specifically with Herne the Hunter, who you might be familiar with from uh, Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor. He's the um, kind of ghost of Windsor Great Park, uh, an antlered huntsman who presides over the wild hunt and appears uh, to the startled passerby when Britain is in danger. Uh, this association with the wild hunt and his whole kind of origin story of how he was a hunter under Richard II is an invention by a Victorian novelist. Um, oh gosh, his surname is Ainsworth and it's W. Harrison Ainsworth, I think. Uh, and, uh, and the novel is Windsor Castle, published in 1842. Uh, but that narrative of, of Hearn being the leader of the wild hunt um, becomes accepted as if it were folklore, even though we have a known origin point for it. So I'm wondering whether with such a large percentage of practicing pagans also being into live action role play or other types of highly imaginative play, we'll see more of that practice, more of those fictional narratives migrating over um, or whether it's a sort of um, loop where people are inspired by existing religious traditions in creating fiction, and then that mutates and comes back into religious practice. I have to ask, uh, do you come across any chaos, chaos magicians? Because this is also sending a lot like their comfortability with taking fictional entities and uh, allowing them to become religious objects, subjects. Um, I personally have not come across chaos magicians within the LARP community, which is not to say that there aren't any, uh, but I believe Joseph P. Laycock, who is a um, professor of religious studies at Texas State University, did some work on, um, yeah, sort of... Um, devising thought forms within a fictional space with the intent of then using them in actual practice. Ah, Talpa-y stuff. <laughs> yes, Talpa-y stuff. I'll, I'll try to hunt down that article and uh, uh, maybe it could be included in the show notes. Yeah, very interesting. Wonderful. So as you had mentioned, there's about 40% of members of the player base who are, are coming from pagan beliefs. And there's this melding of the fictitious elements of religion that are kind of being adopted into like some contemporary pagan beliefs. Do you think outside of that, that other individuals who might be participating in LARPing are adopting paganistic beliefs if they might've, you know, been agnostic or atheist before, do you think this could be a way to kind of adopt a belief system? Temporarily, certainly. And this is something I've certainly seen in my interviewees um, and also something that carries in the work of other scholars working on similar topics, that this frame of fantasy gaming, whether it is live action role play or um, online multiplayer communities, um, allows people to experience a religion without necessarily converting and committing to it. And there seems to be a lot of appeal in that. Uh, so one of the players expressed to me that 
Um, he used to be um, kind of very spiritual, very new agey as a teenager, uh, but then became disillusioned with any kind of religious structures, spiritual structures, and became an atheist. Um, but he still craves that connection and that um, enchantment, uh, which he's only able to accept uh, to ac- access through role play because it has that degree of separation. It has that frame past which he pe- perhaps can't be ridiculed for his belief almost. I think I have a very similar experience when I was quite younger. Uh, through my mid-adolescence, I was very devout. Uh, for a period of my life, I wanted to pursue, uh, you know, I wanted to become a preacher. And I also became quite disillusioned with religion as I got older and going through college. I consider myself to be agnostic at this point. But I gravitate when I play. Um, I'm also an avid DVD, uh, I said DVD, uh, Dungeons and Dragons player. And I, I tend to be either a cleric or a paladin, someone who's kind of deep seated in their religious beliefs, or they've been chosen by the God, because I'm still kind of wanting to have that sensation. Like I currently in a campaign that I play with some friends, I worship the goddess Lyria, who's like the goddess of love and joy. And you kind of develop your character around how they would act, how they want to impress their God or how they want to live in their God's image. And that's something that I, as an individual outside of a role-playing instance, can no longer do. It's something that is is not quite there for me anymore. Till I cover that religion, Luke, I'm working my way around. Eventually, we'll find one that clicks. <laughs> Yes, that's 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 kind of how it feels. <laughs> that sounds like a wonderful experiment. And I wonder whether um, within these gaming communities, something similar is happening where um, conventional religious structures might not hold the same appeal to these individuals, but um, they come to this kind of game space to maybe invent a new spiritual movement. And it's, it's much more freeing. Uh, you don't have the same commitment to a religious belief that you would outside of a LARP environment. Yeah, absolutely. And it also doesn't um, kind of, you can get things wrong uh, without running the risk of um, undermining other people's belief or security. Uh, because the wonder of uh, religious structures in live action role play is that a lot of it is you make it up as you go along. Um, for example, this kind of new deity that has been introduced was, it, it's not retroactively inserted into the narrative, it just suddenly is. Um, and people make peace with that and in, in, a, in a way that feels right for them. Um, people have come up to me and told me about um, the hunter being... Uh, this kind of protective fatherly character and my character was just like no the hunter is evil and he stabs you and he eats babies because that's what the (laughs) hunter does i mean i can't blame them i'm also uh, a baby eater (laughs) (laughs) what (laughs) that is not where i thought that would go (laughs) no no that's uh i recently had my my first child um i i did eat her today so oh that's wonderful (laughs) 
happening? So, so Anna, this is what, I mean, it strikes me. I mean, we're, this, we're an occult podcast. We have a lot of occulty people. Part of the concern in the occult community is um, about spiritual health and falling on the wrong side of the spirit or spirit or God. Is, is this a place, it feels to me like because we're sort of in this, you know, Austinian abuse space where we're not really committing, we're not really saying the words, we're not really doing the ritual, do, do they feel safe? You feel safe talking about the horn god in a way that you might not if you were in an actual pagan space. I try to get at this with a lot of the people I've interviewed, um, starting with the question of when you are conducting a devotional ritual within the logic of the game. Uh, and within LARP, there will be um, rituals that are purely to propitiate the gods, and there are also rituals that um, ask for some kind of magical effect um, in return for a sacrifice. And I was asking, well, are those real? It, oftentimes, they use structures recognizable from Wicca or from Asatru. Um, are you actually doing the thing? And the answer I usually get is no. This is this is not the intent to perform the ritual as a true spiritual devotion isn't there. But also, something happens when you do the ritual, and it becomes kind of real. And a lot of people understandably shy away from the language of truth and reality because ultimately everyone understands that they're playing a game and that knowledge is never lost. But the sense that something happens that cannot be categorized within the confines of the rules uh, is definitely present. So it's not pure fiction in that moment anymore. Yes. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I understand the scholarly hesitation, Anna, but it's an, that's interesting. That fascinates me. Uh, so to, to, give, to give an example, uh, with my character doing a heresy, um, she, her noble house, uh, some years since she joined and kind of came onto the scene, um, had a ward, uh, much like King Arthur, was warded to Sir Ector. Um, they were raising a, 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 an heir of another noble house who turned out to be a bad egg and fell from the way of the hunter and became corrupted and decided to um, capture power for himself and became this big antagonist for the community. Uh, but instead of um, criticizing him, Sim, Simonetta, saw this character called Arahath as basically a petulant teen and a person who wanted glory and who wanted um, a sense of control over his own life that he wasn't getting because he was involved in all of his culty activity. This obviously met with a lot of uh, very unpopular reactions from her community. She was uh, grilled by the Inquisition metaphorically luckily not real not literally <laughs> although it did come close at one point where people were standing next to me going like one wrong step and we'll burn you i was just like okay oh, that's so uh, kind of them yeah and lots of lots of really stimulating religious conversations where people were trying to pull her back to what they saw was the correct religious interpretation uh and 
Arahas, meanwhile, tries to corrupt Simonetta further and to pull her from her community and to have her as his uh, lieutenant and kind of join her, join him in kind of pillaging and burning everything. So I felt as Sim that I could redeem him. And I thought from a narrative point of view, it would be really fun if I managed to redeem this seemingly irredeemable character and bring him back into the light. But during our last encounter, um, it was nighttime. Uh, he came out of the shadows with his kind of horde of monstrous beings. Um, he was played by quite a kind of large, incredibly fit uh, uh, gentleman uh, and had this um, massive fursuit on with a skeletal stag's head mask over his head. So uh, in the dark, absolutely terrifying with like growls and guttural noises. And he calls to me and he goes, Simonetta, come into the dark. And I scream back, no, you come into the light. And in that moment, I forgot that it would be a fun story to try and redeem him. In that moment, I felt certain that I will go down fighting for my community. And that line between Simonetta, the character, and Anna, the person, became really, really thin, not because I was confused about who I was, but because in that moment it was unimportant. Uh, and I kind of charged him and was promptly shredded to death and that is when my character actually died I could have avoided that as a player I could have easily avoided being killed but it felt wrong for the character because the character was suddenly so immersed and so involved so whether that's um a kind of spiritually true experience or me just being really jacked up on adrenaline I do not know but it is interesting it's pretty metal. That's a metal way to go, I gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that in instances like that, when you're really portraying Simonetta's character, that she aligns with beliefs that you would have if you were faced in the the real world outside of the LARPing uh, like scenario with someone who is, you know, threatening you? Would you be someone who would kind of go forward and try and do the right thing or or is that something that only exists for your character? That's a difficult one, because on the one hand, to a certain extent, we are all playing ourselves um, with LARP events going on for days at a time. The effort that it takes to play something completely removed uh, from yourself is very high. So people tend to slip into something that's more comfortable and familiar. But at the same time, I don't think that um, if this safety net of the fiction was removed, I would act anything like uh, Simonetta or my other characters acted. Um, and uh, similarly with other players I've interviewed who have not shied away from using the language of religious extremism and terrorism to describe their characters' religious stance were then very adamant that that is not how they see themselves in the real world and not how they would act in the real world. So we can think about, you know, like you said, in a combat scenario, your personal strength, your personal um, 
uh, ability, skills, reflexes. That's you to a large yes. extent. But the hard skill, as you had called it, that when it comes to belief, that's uh, put on. That's that's a, it's a ca- those are the characters' beliefs. But, but, yes. I, mean, I, I guess I'm thinking about the folks debating you or you know trying to talk you into one thing or another. I, I mean, that having been said, that you're putting on the belief, nevertheless. Your skill, your your personal approach to rationalism and making an argument, that is still very much you, right? Yes, you bring up an interesting point because that is also a, almost a separate aspect of the game. The fact that I enjoy debating and enjoy um, conflict role play with people who are generally on my side um exists or can exist completely separate from any religious views that I express. Uh, this style of game can um, happen regardless of the beliefs that the players act- uh, the character is actually expressing uh, because it's it's the type of interaction that you're having with other players. And I've certainly met players who are very uncomfortable with any kind of antagonism between characters. Um, And even if they do express opinions that you go like a bit, oh, that's not really what I'd say, Uh, to to make sure that they're comfortable, you just don't press them about it. Hmm, That's interesting. So, I mean, in theory, you know, Luke or I could play a fundamentalist and, and just have a good time telling people because the book says it, it's true. That's what God wants. I've always yeah. wanted to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Something that uh, play, uh, my interviewees have expressed to me is um, this kind of seeking of a sense of certainty that is largely absent from the everyday lives of especially younger people today. What that they can achieve through having, through imposing this um, religious fundamentalist lens on the characters they play. Yeah, that makes sense. I hear that. (laughs) This podcast would be a lot easier if I could just say, well, the book says that. Uh, So we're good now. You could be a quite literal Bible thumper. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but fascinatingly, of course, uh, while there are certainly books in the real world that some people that way inclined can point to, uh, there really is no fixed text in LARP. Anything can be um, retroactively changed, anything can be rewritten, um, anything can be challenged by another player or a referee or, or a plot writer. So the kind of core cornerstone of that kind of thinking is absent. You have to invent it. So, I mean, you it's tough to be a fundamentalist then in this situation. I mean, I think it's tough to be a fundamentalist in general. The Bible, I, I think I could explain in much the same way you just explained the oral culture of, of these folks. But you can't say, uh, you know, I commit to this because this is how it is. Because someone who also considers them a fundamentalist of this belief system could believe the exact opposite. And neither of you have anything to turn to. Yes. And, and you're only... Um you can only go as far as you are willing to interact with other people and they are supporting your game. So gameplay happens at this weird collaborative juncture where people choose to suspend disbelief together in the same direction. Uh, And if um, I come up to someone and go, well, the hunter eats babies and that's my fundamental belief and it says so, and 
a book that I've never seen and probably doesn't exist, but it says so in a book. Um, and the person listening to me goes like, oh, yes, of course. And you are this terrifying spear of the hunter. And we know that your knowledge is superior. Therefore, we bow to it. If if they kind of turn around and go like, no, you're wrong. There is no argument that I can make that is that has any more weight or value than theirs. We can have a wonderful conversation, but um, there is no sense of intellectual superiority. My goodness. So you're LARPing certainty in a world that um, <laughs> where there's literally no certainty to be had. Yeah, it, it gets very meta after a while. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> It's almost like um, using and then in improv. It's just to keep everything going. There's no, you want to avoid any sort of stop. Yes, absolutely. It's um, actually it is. uh, I did not realize that and then was an improv technique because that is a phrase that is very often used by plot writers or by referees who uh, try to channel players' ideas into more kind of productive roots uh, rather than shutting them down completely. Can you tell me, Anna, what it looks like if you've witnessed this, and uh, I'm guessing you might have in the course of your your time LARPing, when somebody goes wrong, and by that I don't mean within the story, I mean goes wrong against the performance frame, uh, breaks the frame in a way that is not permitted? Referees are on hand to uh, make sure that the damage from that is minimized. So uh, depending on what exactly happens, the player will probably be taken aside and um, a quiet chat will be had about um, what's allowed and why the way they've behaved might not be helpful to other players. Um Hmm. Well, what does There's that look always... like? What, what what do I have to do to get pulled aside? Oh, huh. There's one that's kind of innocuous and fairly silly, but Curious um, Pastimes is a high fantasy system with a kind of known inspiration texts. Uh, but we had a player turn up with a full set of. Um, Warhammer 40k Eldari weapons, which are very um, sci-fi and and a very recognizable sci-fi look, which broke people's immersion and went against the aesthetics of the game. So um, one of the referees for my particular community, because he joined that, um, came up to him and said, you can use these for this event, because you're already here, you've paid your money, you don't have any other weapons. But for next time, could you please bring something else? So you can make an aesthetic error. Yes. Yeah, okay. So I shouldn't bring my my Space Marine chain sword. It depends <laughs> which system you go to, because I'm sure that uh, there are some where that will be wholeheartedly welcomed. I imagine just like showing up in like in scuba gear. Everyone's like, what is this guy up to? Yeah, there are there are moments. There are also moments where people 
trial up for the first time and realize kind of mid-event that it's not for them. It's not something they really understand how um, the process works. And that's also fine. Um, you can you could leave at any point. Nobody's going to hold you at gunpoint or um, demand that you sign and kind of an NDA about what we do in the woods. Can it get too intense where somebody says, I mean, the moment you described sounds very intense. I mean, I could cons- imagine a player saying, wait, pause, time out. Uh, this is too much. Yes, there are mechanics and they have been developing um, over the, especially over the last couple of years of um, exiting scenarios that are too intense or maybe traumatic or triggering uh, or pausing um, during this whole um, kind of scene with Simonetta because I was being pressured by a large number of people to change my thoughts. I've definitely taken moments to just step out and sit in my tent for like 10, 20 minutes uh, and just be away from everywhere, um, talk to a person out of character, just have a friendly chat. Like, is everything okay? Yes, everything is fine. Uh, there are quick check-ins that people do to ensure that everyone is comfortable. Uh, I think the most evident um, example of get of things getting too intense is uh, post lot blues, where you um, finish an event and you come home, and suddenly you're hit with the reality of your everyday life, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, taxes, no. <laughs> So the recommendation is to uh, take the Monday after your events off and just take the time to adjust back to your everyday life, because it is a very different frame of mind that you adopt when you go into the woods for three days to pretend that you are an elf or a space pirate. (laughs) Yes, you could just become a college professor. And you never. That's have to what face I'm working world. on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we don't deal with reality in any context. It's just not our thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, do you have any uh, last questions here? I do. So, Anna, what would be your number one recommendation for someone who wants to get into LARPing but just doesn't know where to start? Oof. Much as I would love to say, just close your eyes and jump, I think in this case, it's important to find a friend who knows what they're doing. Because the volume of information that somebody needs to remember, especially if they're not familiar with other types of role-playing games, is quite substantial. And it can be quite a large barrier to getting involved. So find someone who is willing to babysit you for the first couple of events uh, and kind of prod you when you need to fall over or when you need to scream and run, because that's very helpful. You will not be able to memorize something like 20, 30 um, individual calls uh, off off the bat. And um, yeah, having someone to prompt you is incredibly helpful. Can you Google that up, you know, my local LARPing group and try to make a connection? Yeah, absolutely. Most of them are on Facebook. Facebook is a great place to uh, find LARPs, to learn more about them and to connect with people. Cool. Any advice for a new LARPer? Uh, Depends on your flavor of game. Uh, If you're you're into kind of fests and um, 
um, fantasy settings. Don't worry about having everything nailed down from the get-go. Um, Simonetta started without kit. Like I just pulled a vaguely renaissance shirt out of a cupboard and wore my mum's combat trousers. <laughs> <laughs> and I picked up a hat at a, from a trader at the event, and that was what I wore. And then um, three years later, I've spent too much too much on kit she has a custom coat she has a full set of armor and now she's dead <laughs> so, but her twin the, is still out there yes her twin limonetta <laughs> is going to show an adventure <laughs> well perhaps perhaps uh but yeah the story of your character will grow with the telling uh and it's uh, yeah it will become this rich amazing thing it doesn't have to be one from the get-go any final thoughts for us anna on this subject well, I would like love to thank you for doing what you're doing because it's amazing. Um, and in terms of the overlap between occultism and LARP, in a way, um, as kind of sticking it up to the moral entrepreneurs of the 70s and 80s who criticised and kind of lambasted both D&D and LARP as um, this kind of satanic gateway to witchcraft and devil worship. I would like to say that, yes, we are doing that and we're succeeding at it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. (laughs) From a LARPer herself. Uh, this has been wonderful, Anna. I really appreciate having you, and thank you for the kind words. Uh, it has been a delight. Really fascinating subject. I wish you uh, best of luck on the dissertation, and uh, I hope it's done in good time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Luke, uh, anything else from you? No, just thank you for your time, and it was just wonderful getting to learn more about this from your perspective. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, here with Luke, here with Anna Millen, uh, and you can check out her work. Anna, give us the name of of, uh, the the most recent book you've been published in. So it's Fictional Practices of Spirituality, Volume 1, from uh, Transcript Publishing, uh, due out in hopefully November this year. Uh, Thank you again, Anna, and uh, we'll see you next time. Catch you next time. You'll hear us next time here on Occult Confessions.